Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the beauty of your word, every part of your word, Lord. Even as we go into a passage this morning that's uh, maybe a little obscure, maybe a little unusual to, uh, to study, Lord, we pray that you would uh, give us insight, Lord. Show us what it shows um, of your son, Lord. We are here to worship you. We are here to glory in your son, Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that as we open your word, that you would do just that in our hearts, Lord. We have a desperate need for that at all times. And, uh, and we pray you'd come, Lord. We thank you so much in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to, for the next two weeks, kind of prepare our hearts for Christmas. And I thought no better way than, than uh, Matthew chapter 1. Um, if you guys take a look at Matthew chapter 1, it's a genealogy. Okay? And you guys are thinking like, oh, perfect, right? And it starts off the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then it goes on to say Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah. And then it goes on through a very long list of names, which Chad already demonstrated can be difficult to do. And, um, and what we're going to do when we do this this morning is we're going to look at this, at this genealogy and show what it shows of Jesus. And you've got to imagine um, when you read this, you might be thinking to yourself, if you were Matthew's editor, you might look at his book here and go, Matthew, if you really want people to read this, you might not want to start off this way, right? Uh, you might not want to start off with a huge list of names, but I'll tell you what, guys, the first century audience, the first century Jewish audience was riveted by stuff like this. You throw a genealogy in the beginning and they're like, ooh, genealogy, you know, like this was the best thing possible. Genealogies were a really big deal for first century Jews. Your genealogy actually got you access to temple worship. You had to be able to show that you were from Israel and what particular part of Israel you were from. And a genealogy, too, guys, functioned kind of like resumes do for us now. To see if somebody was qualified for something, they would want to see the genealogy, just like they might want to look at your resume now. And just like that, some people doctored their genealogies. Just like people pat their resumes now and kind of tweak some things, people did that in ancient times with their, with their genealogies. Herod the Great was known to have done that. He took certain people out and put certain people in to make himself look better. Matthew introduces Jesus here as the Christ. Take a look at verse 1 again. It says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That word Jesus, that's his given name. That would be his kind of first name, right? Um, it's, it's a Greek form of Joshua. It means Jehovah saves. And then Christ, Christ is not his last name. I think a lot of times we think of like Jesus Christ, like he's Mr. Christ or something like that. No, Christ is, is a title, okay? Christ is a title. Christ is um, a title meaning Messiah, meaning anointed one. And it was a term that was given to a lot of people throughout the Old Testament. There were anointed priests and there were anointed kings and there were anointed rulers. But it came more and more to be associated with that one coming king, that one promised king that was going to come in and bring God's kingdom on earth. And so they were waiting for this Messiah. And this was a time of lots of people coming forward saying that they were the Messiah. And with this genealogy, Matthew wants to show us, guys, that show that first century audience that Jesus is in the royal line of David and therefore can be that promised king, that promised Messiah. Um, there's two things you got to know about this genealogy before we get started, though. And the first one is this genealogy is Joseph's genealogy, not Mary's. And that might seem kind of odd to you because we know that 
Jesus is not genetically descended from Joseph, right? Um, uh, Joseph is Jesus' stepdad. And Matthew makes that clear in verse 18. He says, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, talking about intimacy there, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So Jesus has Mary as his genetic earthly mother, but he has no genetic earthly father. Jesus was conceived within Mary miraculously by the Holy Spirit. And so why give Joseph's genealogy? Seems kind of odd, doesn't it? I mean, Matthew recognizes this fact, and he still goes ahead and gives Joseph's genealogy. Why does he do that? That's what the first century Jews would be looking for. They would be interested in his legal lineage through his stepfather, Joseph. But um, one thing to realize about this, too, is that Mary and Joseph were both descendants of David. They were both from the line of David. So everything I mentioned today about relatives and stuff um, that he has legally through Joseph, he would also have genetically through Mary because the divergent point happened after David. The other thing you need to realize about this genealogy is that it isn't complete. And that's okay. That it, it was common to have incomplete genealogies. There, he didn't list every single human being in the line between Abraham and Jesus. And we know that because of like the section there where you see Perez and Aminadab. We know between those two guys there was 400 years, and yet there's only four names. So it was common to not have them be completely uh, filled out with every single person. They're highlights, right? Some ancestors were, were left out. That was completely acceptable. So that to be the father of somebody just meant that they were your ancestor. Just like Jesus is the son of David. David wasn't his direct dad. He is a descendant of David. And that's, that's what you see here. And Matthew chooses to highlight only some of Jesus' ancestors to show how he's a descendant of Abraham and of David. And so I was thinking what we could do this morning is maybe what we'll do is go through each of these names individually. And I could just give you a brief uh, background sketch of who they are and why they're important. Does that sound good? No, okay. What I think what we'll do this morning is what we'll do is we'll say, okay, if a genealogy is a resume, if a genealogy functions as a resume, what does this resume say about the kind of Messiah that Jesus is? And I've got four answers from you here. First one is that Jesus is a historical Messiah. Notice that the book of Matthew does not start off with once upon a time right? Nor does it start off with a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, okay? Nor does it even start with in a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit, okay? It doesn't start that way, right? Because this, he's intending to give history, not mythology, not just an inspiring tale. He's grounding Jesus in history. So then that's why uh, the Gospel of Matthew starts with a genealogy. It's to show Jesus in a historical line of persons, people that we know to be historical people, such as Abraham and David and Solomon. And so Matthew's placing Jesus in his historical context. And this would be a history that all of his readers would be very familiar with. They'd go, oh yeah, that guy. Oh, I remember something about him. You know, I'm kind of related to that guy too. You know, in some of this history would have been just a couple of decades before uh, Matthew wrote this. And so Matthew is showing that Jesus is a real historical person who's done real historical things of importance. And this is an important distinction, guys, between the Bible and a lot of religious literature. In a lot of religions, it doesn't so much matter if the things in their religious texts actually happened. Okay? There's stories with a point. There's stories with a moral. They're supposed to inspire you in certain ways, and it doesn't really matter if it happened. That's not the way it is um, for the Gospels. They aren't just inspiring stories containing life advice, okay? And guys, the gospel is, isn't advice, it's news. 
It's historical news. The word, the word gospel means what? Good news, right? The gospel means good news. And gospel is a really common first century word. It was used to announce um, a new king coming into power or a military victory, something that would change your life in an amazing way. It was called a gospel. It was called good news. Imagine, guys, if we lived in the first century and Menifee was under attack. Okay, and, and there were inv foreign invaders coming, and they were kind of down near Lake Elsinore, and they're going to come up kind of Railroad Canyon to get us, right? And we sent out our army, and they went down there to fight and fight this battle. Guys, if we lost, they would send messengers back to us. And what would they say? We got problems, okay? The messengers would come back and say, here's some advice. Here's how you can try to save yourself. Here's some good things you could do, right? But what if we won? If we won, then messengers would be sent back to announce the good news, the gospel. And in the first century, the people that did that kind of announcing were called evangelists, good newsers, right? And they would announce that our greatest problem had been solved. Guys, the gospel is not good advice. It is the earth-shattering good news that by his cross and resurrection, Jesus the Messiah has conquered sin and death for everybody who will trust in him. It's historical news. Jesus is a historical Messiah. Secondly, Jesus is a covenantal Messiah. We see that also in verse 1. It says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. There's two people listed in that verse. Do you see who they are? It's David and Abraham. It's David and Abraham because the birth of Jesus is the coming good on promises that God made 2,000 years before his birth and 1,000 years before his birth. 2,000 years before Jesus was born, God made a covenant with Abraham and promised him that one day a descendant was going to come from Abraham's line that would bless all nations. Not just their nation, but all nations. And the book of Matthew ends that way. And then a thousand years before Jesus was born, God made a similar promise to David, right? And promised him that one day somebody was going to come from his line, from David's line, that was going to reign as king forever. And we see that promise in 2 Samuel 7, 16. God says this through the prophet. And your house, David, your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. There was a promise made to David a thousand years before Jesus was born. And they sung about it. And in Psalm 89, they sung about it. And they sang this, um, speaking from God's vantage point. I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand for him, firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever in his throne as the days of heaven. That's in Isaiah. Continuing that promise that was made a thousand years before Jesus, it's repeated in Isaiah, but it was still 700 years off. And in Isaiah it says this, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will rest upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to be established and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So this promise gets reiterated. So there was a promise made 2,000 years before Jesus' birth, and then there was another one 1,000 years before Jesus' birth. Jesus' birth is making good on those promises that were thousands of years old. And this gets to an interesting thing that you need to understand about the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is the kind of God that makes these massive long-term promises and then he makes his people wait for thousands of years. Okay? But he always makes good on his promises. Which is really cool, but it's also really frustrating. 
Um, How many of you guys feel like you've been waiting on the Lord for something for a really long time? That's normal. (laughs) That's what it's like to live with him. He makes these long-term promises, and then he unfolds a story over vast lengths of time. And he's not going to rush it because we're impatient. He's got a story he's telling, we're going to have to wait. Isn't that interesting? He's that kind of a God. And so if you're frustrated, maybe that's why. Has God left you waiting? The first thing I can tell you is, welcome to the club. This is the way it is. This is the way it is to live with a covenantal God. And we see it in the Psalms too. How many times in the Psalms does it talk about waiting on the Lord? These people are like, we're waiting still. And they were right there in that period, a thousand years before the Messiah. They had heard about a promise a thousand years before them. It hadn't happened yet, and they're waiting. And that's why the Psalms contain all kinds of talk like that. The second thing I'd say to you guys is that you can be absolutely confident that God will follow through on every promise he's made to you. His record is impeccable. In this season, guys, that we call Advent, right? It's traditionally called Advent, not the Christmas season, but Advent. The word Advent means coming or arrival. And during Advent, we remember that God was faithful to keep all of his promises concerning that first arrival, that first Advent of Christ. And there were specific promises. Maybe you can think of some of them. Like the fact that he'd come from David's line. What other promises were there about the first Advent? Go ahead. It's an open book. Born of a virgin was a promise that was made. What else? He would come out of Bethlehem, right? And then it also talks about him coming out of Egypt. And so there was a time when he fled. They, they fled with their baby, and then they came back out of Egypt, and they fulfilled both of them. What else? That he would come humbly, that he'd be born in a humble way, right? It would talk about how he would live this beautiful life, and that he would die this sacrificial death, and then he'd be raised from the dead, and then he would ascend. There were very specific promises. And so historically, though, guys, the Advent season has been focused not only on the first Advent, but also the second Advent. You guys realize this, but Christmas time... Uh, Advent time has historically always been about both Advents, putting both of them together, that he has been faithful in the past at the first Advent, and he's going to be faithful with the second Advent as well. If he could answer all those specific promises in such a clear way, he's going to do it again, right? And there's specific promises about the second coming, things like that he's going to bring justice and peace to the world, that he's going to rid the world of disease and disability and sin and oppression and war and death. Right? That he's going to raise us physically anew so that we can live in a redeemed physical world forever. That we'll enjoy his direct personal presence, friendship, and physical presence of the Messiah. He's going to set all things right. Right? Or like Tolkien talked about, he's going to make everything sad come untrue. And we know he's going to come through on this, guys, because he came through the first time. And that's what Advent reminds us. Um, This week I was thinking about Advent, and um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's written a lot of stuff on Advent, and I found this letter that he wrote while he was uh, imprisoned by the Nazis. He was in Tegel Prison. This is the beginning of Advent, so it's November 28th, 1943. He's never going to be released. He'll die within two years. The beginning of Advent's coming, and how does he feel during Advent season? And this is what he wrote to his parents. He wrote this. The Advent season is a season of waiting. But our whole life is an Advent season. That is, a season of waiting for the last Advent, for the time when we will be in the new heaven and the new earth. And I was just thinking about Advent, guys, and I think if we rediscovered that focus on Advent, we would have far less things to be lonely and sad about during this time. 
A lot of times there's a lot of talk, and it's a real reality that for a lot of people, Christmas time could be a sad time because of uh, loss of family, because of you know, financial situations. It just kind of compounds a lot of loneliness. But guys, um, what makes Christmas sad sometimes is that it's all about rejoicing in our earthly blessings, Right? It, including our family, right? That it's all about family and food and gifts. It's about rejoicing in all the things God's given us, which isn't wrong. But guys, if we would rediscover this, that Advent is about the faithfulness of God the first time Christ came, and it's about his faithfulness to come in the future, and that we would use this as a time of longing for his second Advent, That would change everything, guys. Advent was powerful enough to give joy to Bonhoeffer as he's sitting in a Nazi prison. It reminded him, guys, of the faithfulness of God. And I think if Christmas is only about family and other earthly blessings, there's going to be some people that are always left out in the cold, right? But if it's about the first and second Advent, guys, we can all rejoice in that. We're all waiting for the Messiah. So Jesus is a historical Messiah. He's a covenantal Messiah that keeps us waiting. And then thirdly, he's a gracious Messiah. One of the things that would have really surprised first century readers about this genealogy that don't surprise you but would surprise them is uh, the number of female names. There are four female names besides Mary's here. And um, what's highly unusual about this is, number one, genealogies are about men. But secondly, the most uh, surprising thing about it would be the particular women that Matthew chooses to include. He doesn't include the matriarchs of the Old Testament. He doesn't talk about Sarah. He doesn't talk about Rebecca. He doesn't talk about um, Leah, those revered first women of the nation. Who does he list? Take a look at it. Verse 3. He lists Tamar. Verse 5. He lists Rahab. Verse 5. He lists Ruth. And then verse 6, he lists Bathsheba, although he calls her the wife of Uriah. Two of these women, guys, were foreigners. One was a Canaanite. Rahab was a Canaanite. Ruth was a Moabite. Both enemies of the nation of Israel. And three of them had extremely unsavory pasts. Okay? Tamar, Rahab, and Bathsheba. And remember, guys, there's no reason Matthew has to include them at all. You don't have to include all the descendants. And it wasn't even common to include women. He's trying to make a point here. He's making a point that would be, for some readers, quite offensive. But he's making a point that Jesus is a gracious Messiah. You guys remember who Tamar was? Tamar, Genesis um, 38. Tamar was the daughter-in-law of Judah. And when her husband, Judah's son, died, Judah was supposed to find her a new husband. He failed to do so. So she had a plan. She decided she was going to disguise herself as a prostitute. She puts herself forward to Judah on the road somewhere. Um, They end up having sex. And what results is these... Um, children that are mentioned here, Perez and Tra. And, and the interesting thing about this, guys, is that Matthew wants to highlight the fact that, that Jesus doesn't have a perfect Christmas letter kind of family. Okay? I don't know if these are still common, but Christmas letters are good. You know, you write about what's going on. But oftentimes, it's a brag fest, right? It's talking about your extremely successful year and how your children are all above average. <laughs> Aren't all our children above average, which is amazing how math works. Um, What Matthew wants to show here, guys, is that the stories of Jesus' family are a little bit more rugged, okay? When he writes about, when Matthew writes about Jesus' family line, it's a lot more rugged. He doesn't want to hide that. What about Rahab? Rahab, you remember when the people of Israel, when they were freed from Egypt, they wandered around because of disobedience for 40 years, and then they finally get to inherit the promised land. When they get there, there's a, a fortified city, Jericho. 
And um, they're intimidated by the city. They send some spies in behind the enemy lines into the walls to see what's going on. And the way those spies were able to escape is there was a prostitute in the city, Rahab, who was willing to hide them and help them to get out. In return, Rahab was like, you know, I know you guys are powerful. I know your God is the true God. Take me with you, you know. Please rescue me. And they not, but the cool thing is, is they not only rescued her, they not only allowed her into the covenant family, but God allowed her to be the great, 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 you get the idea, grandmother in the royal line of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? What kind of story is this? I was thinking about what this might mean for, um, for uh, the, the women in Cambodia that Holly ministers to. You think about she's in Cambodia, she rescues women out of sex trafficking, disciples them, a lot of them become believers, most of them become believers. What would it mean for ex-prostitutes to know that the great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother of Jesus was at one time a prostitute? You know what it means? Access. It means access. It means that the way into Jesus' family is by grace. All you need is to know your need for him and turn to him. Think about Rahab. She knew that her city was headed for judgment. She asked to be rescued, and she was welcomed into Jesus' family. What about you? You know, have you fled the destruction in your city? God is going to judge this world. That's one of the things he's going to do in the second advent. Have you fled that destruction? Have you asked to be included in the covenant family? He'll welcome you too. What about Bathsheba? She was the wife of a Hittite named Uriah. Hittites were obviously non-Jews. She was probably Jewish. Um, Uriah was one of David's kind of mighty men. He was one of the most faithful warriors in in David's band, the people he trusted the most. These are warriors and friends. Those of you who have been in the military, you know what the bond is. When you're out on the battlefield and and there's a bond that's built there, this was a guy that David could trust no matter what. But you know what? That didn't mean that much to David when he saw Uriah's wife bathing on the rooftop of her house. David took what he wanted. He took what he wanted while his good friend Uriah was out fighting his wars. He took what he wanted. Uh, She ended up getting pregnant from it. And to cover it up, David ended up having that faithful friend of his, Uriah, killed. And then he took Bathsheba to be his wife, trying to cover it up. First child dies. The second child, though, that they had was Solomon. Ends up in the family line. Guys, Matthew could have just said, David was the father of Solomon. Clean. He could have just said, um, David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba. Cleaner than what he did. What did he do? David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. What's he doing here? He's putting a big magnifying glass on the situation. He is intentionally highlighting the sins of the people of Jesus' family. Why does he do that? He wants to show us, guys, how persistent God's love is for his people. You know, you got to realize, David was already a believer when this happened. These weren't his B.C. days, right? This was something that happened while he knew the Lord. How about you? Do you think you've wandered too far from the Lord? Do you think you've gone too far from home? Jesus is a gracious Messiah. He receives back adulterers, murderers, and even the self-righteous people that love to judge them. Jesus will receive, and he'll bring them home. And if, if you do that, if you've walked a long way from the Lord and you return to him now, you know what you're going to find when you come back? You're going to find when you come back what Hebrews 2 says. Hebrews 2 says that Jesus is not ashamed to call you his brother or sister. Isn't that awesome? Jesus is not ashamed of these people, right? He has Matthew write, when he writes his geology, write them right in for everybody to see. And he's not ashamed of you either. He's not ashamed of any of his people. 
in their past. He's willing even to highlight it as a trophy of grace. What kind of resume is this? You know, you look at this and like for a first century resume, what kind of resume is this? This isn't just the resume of a king. This is the resume of a redeemer. This is something to show that he can redeem lives. That he can include people that are far off. And that brings me to the last point, which is Jesus the redeeming Messiah. When he invites you into his family, he doesn't just forgive your sin. He doesn't just include you in his family. He sets about to redeem your past. Isn't that cool? That's what he's done with all these people. That's what he did with Israel. What do I mean by redeem? Redeem means to take something broken and make it work again, right? Um, We live in a disposable culture. When things break, we throw them away. But that's not how Jesus works, right? He's a redeemer. And he shows himself glorious by taking broken things and making them new. And he'll redeem your past. Jesus will uh, rewrite your story. He'll make it as if it's new. Not by expunging your record, but by highlighting his grace. It's amazing. I mean, you know, in some ways you look at Israel's story here, just the bit you know here, regardless of like the whole Old Testament. In some ways you look at the people of Israel and you think that they were doing everything they could to jeopardize God's promise. God promises them these things, and they're like doing everything they can to jeopardize it, right? Um, by including these foreigners, by you know, their immorality, by all these different things, they're jeopardizing the promise. But the amazing thing is that through the birth of Christ, he redeemed their whole story. He makes their whole story right again. It's as if the birth of Christ made Israel's whole history right. You know, all their sins and failures got redeemed in this person. I mean, who would have thought that a story that would have started with incest, a Canaanite, a prostitute, a Moabite, a murderer, two adulterers would result in the birth of the sinless son of God, the savior of the world. That's what we call, I think, a plot twist. Like, that's pretty amazing, right? This doesn't seem to be going anywhere. How about your life? It might not seem to be going anywhere. You know, um, one uh, famous writer said that, that the, uh, a man deals with all the habits he built in the beginning of his life and in the second half of his life. You know, for some of us, we look at our lives and we think, I have built a foundation of fin- sin and failure and running from God. Where could this go? You know? you know, it's better if you, you know, you might think, well, you know, I could come to Christ when I was younger, but to come to him now, what's the point? Guys, in the body of Jesus on that first Christmas, we have the holiest thing on earth, emerging out of the sinful mess of God's people. That's the redemptive power of Jesus. And I was singing this morning about, um, do you guys remember Simeon? He's not a major character. He's in Luke 2. And um, Simeon, he might be offended by that. I don't know. Um, But Simeon was this old man, and he's waiting around the temple. Okay, he's waiting around the temple, and he's waiting to see the Messiah. God had promised him that he wasn't going to kick off. He wasn't going to die until he had seen the Messiah. And one day, um, he comes into the temple and he sees Joseph and Mary there dedicating their baby Jesus to the Lord. And Simeon knows this is the one. Who knows how? God revealed it to him. This is the one. This is the Messiah. And and he walks up, you know, this old man, he walks up and and he picks up this infant Jesus into his arms and he says this, Lord, now let your servant depart in peace. Like, I'm ready to die according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that... Um, has been prepared in the presence of all people, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and of glory for your people Israel. He's like, this baby is going to make everything right. That's so cool. He's holding this little infant. He goes, we're going to be fine. You know, this is going to redeem our entire story. And the same is true of you guys and for your life. Jesus is a redeemer. 
Perhaps you look back on this past year with a lot of regret. You made a mess of your life. Perhaps you're asking, like, what good could come of my story the way I've written it? What good could come of Israel's story? You know? What good could come of Israel's story when we look through the whole Old Testament? Only the birth of the world's Savior, right? That's the redeeming power of Jesus. And so this isn't just the the resume of a king. This is a resume of a redeemer. A redeemer who can take whatever mess sin has gotten you into and make your story new and give you a real future. And so I just plead with you this morning, if you have those kind of regrets, hand it back to him. Hand back to him. Turn to him. Turn from your sin. Hand your life over to him. And then begin to follow his lead. This is his lead, right? This book contains all that we need to know to live with God. And, and start to follow his lead, and he will redeem your life. Start to, to really do life with God's covenant people, you know? Start to really dwell with God's covenant people and watch him redeem your life. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that there would be so many um, just wonderful things to see about your Savior from such a, such a part of the Bible that we would normally skip or skim some people's names that we don't know how to pronounce, some people's names that nobody seems to know how to pronounce. And yet, Lord, in this part of your word, we see Jesus, this historical, covenantal, gracious, redemptive Savior. And we pray, Lord, over the next two weeks as we enter into this time of Christmas, this Advent season, Lord, we pray that we would both be thankful for your faithfulness in the past and longing to see your faithful promises come true in this world. Lord, this world needs redemption. This world needs transformation. This world needs your shalom, your peace. So we pray, come. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of the Menifee Campus of Covenant Grace Church. If you'd like to know more about Covenant Grace Church, visit us online at covgrace.org.